Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for Concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-centered leader in confessional broadcasting. Worldwide KFUO, online at KFUO.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind that is the mind of Christ. And to do that, we read through the book of Concord, the Lutheran Confession of Faith, with our cohort of Christ-confessing Concordians. With us today, our usual cohort, Layman Peter Slayton, social media manager for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. We also have Pastor Peter Ill, who is the pastor at Trinity and Milstadt, Illinois. And myself as your host, Pastor Sean Smith, and I am the pastor of Emmanuel West Point in St. Paul's Wine Hill. And today we are going to continue making our way through the power and primacy of the Pope. And today we'll be taking a look at, beginning with paragraph 22, the refutation of Roman arguments. If you tuned in last week, we thank you for tuning in. We're, we apologize for the rebroadcast last week. Uh, dear uh, professor and pastor and and mentor for a lot of us passed away, and his funeral was last week, uh, Reverend Dr. Norman Nagel. And uh, I, I was present for that, as were a lot of other pastors uh, that had him as a professor and so forth. So we, uh, we did a rebroadcast for that. So thank you for listening, but uh, glad you have joined us again this week as we continue to push forward in the power and primacy of the Pope. It was good to, to kind of refresh our memory where we're starting there, too. And uh, to, to kind of do it again this week, just very briefly, though, uh, one thing I want to reiterate is that the the treatise itself kind of falls into two parts. The first part uh, basically sets forth uh, the claims about the papacy that had developed over the years. And that, that's kind of a threefold claim uh, that they have. The Pope is the supreme head of the church by divine right. That's the first claim that they make. The second claim is that the Pope is, by divine right possesses both the spiritual sword and the temple sword so that he has authority to bestow and transfer kingdoms. And then the third uh, claim is it is necessary for salvation to believe these things because he himself is the vicar of Christ on earth. So that's the first part. And that's probably about the first 59 paragraphs of this. So we're definitely still in that first part. Uh, And then we'll get into the second part and we'll we'll discuss that at greater length, uh, uh, especially, you know, how how we Lutherans get our ministers then and so forth is what we'll cover in the second part. But just going to kind of refresh you as to where we're at and what we're covering, what we're looking at here. And so especially as we get into the refutation of the Roman arguments here today, uh, we're definitely still uh, dealing with these three claims that had developed over time. And, and specifically some of the claims that we see today, I, I kind of wonder if my cohort has any thoughts on or, or information as to when some of these things began to develop, because we're going to see it clearly wasn't there very early in the church, but it had been something that had developed. So that's that's one of the claims that certainly had come up. But we'll get into all of that, a lot to get into today. We're going to try and cover this whole section on refuting the Roman arguments as they come up. Uh, brothers, uh, 
I, my whole goal is to just keep talking and not allow you to talk at all on the show. Well, I'm done with the social media posts now. Okay, so, great. So I can talk. Glad so. you're back in. Any any opening thoughts as we we jump into refuting the Romans today? Well, I. I don't know the dates of when this stuff developed, but I did have the thought as I was reading today's section today, preparing for the show, that it if you're going to read, we're going to talk about Peter's confession a lot. And, you know, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, his confession in Matthew, which is one of their foundational texts for the Pope. And I was trying to think, okay, how would somebody come to the conclusion that this establishes the office of the Pope as opposed to our conclusion, which is, it's actually this confession that establishes the church or that the church is built around the, around Peter's confession. And, and the thought I had was, I, I think it's easier to read that it's about the confession unless you actually need to find a reason to prop up something you're already doing. And I'm wondering if that's it's not a very charitable reading of it, so I will I will grant that <laughs> at the beginning that phrasing it this way isn't isn't necessarily the charitable way, but it, it, I found it hard to to read through the different proof texts and think, oh, this is all about Peter. This is all about Peter being established as the first pope because it to me it just doesn't read that way. But if I've already got a pope, if I've already got this authority figure, and I'm trying to find a way to justify having this authority figure, I could see going to scripture and saying, oh, well, yeah, that kind of looks like what we've got. Let's let's go with that. So like I said, it's not necessarily the most charitable interpretation, well, but... But it may be honest and true and is an maybe, intriguing thought. I, don't know. <laughs> I mean, because you certainly see more and more power being attributed to this office. Yeah. And, and, and it wouldn't be the first time in history... Um, and, you know, clearly we, this goes on with the Jews too, where they kind of take a look at God's word and use it to support a system that they have in place that gives them power. Yeah. And we do have enough history to know that you don't have a consistent Pope as, as the Pope was by Luther's time around for the first couple hundred years. So you, you don't have that clear line all the way from Peter to the Pope then and then the Pope's today. Um, so it, it at least makes sense on that level too, that, that you had to find something to fit what you're already doing. Certainly. Intriguing thought. Anything from you, Pastor L? Thinking about church history, we recognize that, uh, there was really unification and a level of respect for the, the bishop at Rome, uh, who we also now know as the Pope by, oh, the early 600s, uh, at the very latest, and that position and that prominence continued to grow until the uh, the Great Schism in 1054 between the Eastern Church and the Western Church, uh, as represented by the Pope at Rome. And so we we do see that position of importance rising. As far as the when uh, these passages from Matthew and John began to be used to uh, defend the the position of the papacy. I'm a little I'm a little more unclear on that history of interpretation, uh, but there's there's all kinds of interesting things that Mr. Slayton's brought up about how this works and how the Roman Catholic Church understands the papacy. Is it something that started with Scripture and then became uh, a position, or was it a position that they had? And then in order to uh, 
to speak well of it, they used scripture kind of filling in the gaps. Uh, and so I think there's a lot there to, to continue to consider. But I think it's also helpful to consider, do these passages actually reinforce the practice of having uh, the Pope, the office of the papacy over the whole church? And I think that's really where our article goes today to say, these are the scriptures that are that are used here. Do they really fit? And that's that's an excellent point to bring up here, too, and to focus. That's definitely the focus of what is going on in this section. Mine was just kind of theorizing because I, I was looking around for it and I hadn't really found anything. And, and in all likelihood, it, it, it probably is just something that, you know, as we see that happens in life a lot of times, you know, just little by little things happen over a span of time in history and all of a sudden becomes this thing. And, and it's hard to nail down. This is when it started, you know, or anything like that. But, uh, and, and as I said, we'll get into, especially right towards the end of this section, um, where, it, it becomes very clear that the earliest um, church fathers, as we call them, um, did not have the interpretation of these passages. And so you're, you're absolutely right, Pastor L. The, the main focus is, look, this is what's going on at the time of the Reformation, and it's still in play today. Uh, and and it's an interpretation of these passages, but do these passages even fit? And I think that that's a good setup for, for where we're going to go here. So I'm going to actually uh, basically read um, the first paragraph, paragraph 22 here, which is going to kind of set up the same point. All right. So this is uh, the power and primacy of the Pope, beginning with paragraph 22, the section on refutation of Roman arguments. They cite against us, so that would be the Roman Catholic Church against the Lutheran reformers, certain passages, namely Matthew 16, verses 18 through 19, which says, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Also from John 21, verse 15, which says, I will give you the keys. Also, feed my lambs and some others. Since this entire controversy has been fully and accurately treated elsewhere in the books of our theologians, and everything cannot be reviewed here, we refer to those writings and wish them to be considered repeated here. Yet we will briefly reply about the interpretation of the passages above. So that's that's the point that Pastor Earl just made. This We're, we're going to respond to the passages that been, have been cited against us as to why we're wrong in our view of the papacy and they're right. And, and, and so we're going to deal with the interpretation of those. I just figured something out. Did you? You know how when you're having like a, an argument on the internet, which we're not supposed to do. I never have an and argument. No, I've, I've never done that either. But, but with Lutherans, you're arguing with a Lutheran. So, you know, we're arguing with each other and we always say, well, go read this book and it'll tell you what's going on. Or like, if look, just summarize it for me. Just tell me what you believe. Don't make me go read a book. It's Melanchthon's fault. That's why we do that. Look at this. Look, we're not going to summarize all that here. They were written in those books. You can go read those books. Well, now I know why we do that on the Internet. It's 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 that's because we're Lutheran. That's you, you just sound what like Lutherans my reasoning, do. You know, 
whenever <laughs> pastors are not able, Lutheran pastors are not able to write anything succinctly. I, I, I mean, I remember writing a few different times for the Lutheran Witness, and I think the most oppressive thing is that there's a word count. And I always blame St. Paul because he cannot say anything concisely. Well, Neither can Melanchthon. Now it's Melanchthon. Yeah. He's like, I can't Go read brush all... my teeth in 300 words. Yeah. Uh, and, and I know it, but... Uh, I'm not sure that correlation equals causation. No, no, Peter. no. I, it does. I'm, I'm going with that. I, because I think I'm it's even, a logical fallacy I, that you just presented man. on this show. But I was given people sorry, a dear listeners, for for that little tangent. This, this cohort has more tangents um, than than anything. And you still but have us back. I, I don't know. I'm a glutton for punishment. Uh, <laughs> okay, there are actual points here that we should. But no, but no. yes, absolutely. Uh, but. I think Melanchthon, despite the little tangent here um, from uh, Peter Slayton, uh, Layman Slayton, <laughs> is uh, that, uh, you know, it, it, I often think, you know, if if I could get people to read, my job as a pastor would be so much easier, right? <laughs> I, and, 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 and I hear the point, mm-hmm. right? You know, just summarize it for me and things like that. But but it, there is something lost in summary, and and we can and should do that, right? But really, books are written, especially good books, are written for a reason because they they fully dive into and evaluate a subject, mm-hmm. an issue, things like that, right? And so and so, I think Melanchthon's point here is is look, if we would just read thorough study and discussion of these things in the books, if you would do that, I think we'd settle a lot of problems here. Right. Um, and, and, maybe, and I think that's a good learned, practice for all of us. To, maybe to he reading. learned his lesson after the apology. He, he was thinking, wow, that apology was too long. Apology to the long. Oxford Confession. Yeah. yeah was, that was really too long. Okay. I'm going to summarize more in the power and primacy of the Pope. <laughs> no, no one read it except that he doesn't do a super great job of keeping it suffice or short here either. But Melanchthon does do a really wise thing here by saying the long full form arguments are set out. But here for the sake of this conversation that we're having by print, uh, it's important that we respond to this particular charge that you make that these Bible verses uh, reinforce your practice. And we're not sure that these Bible verses fit. So we're going to deal with the just this little portion of the conversation about these particular verses, we're going to respond to the way that you're applying these verses to us, to the position of the papacy, and we're going to have it out, not the entire argument, but just this piece about the command, as as it's given, uh, that there be the papacy and through the lens of these selected passages is where they're going to have uh, kind of the uh, uh the skirmish front i guess i guess would be the way to put it yeah one other thing that i want to highlight here before we actually dig into what are these passages saying let's let's have an evaluation of them and so forth and do they actually apply here um the the word is used right at the end of the paragraph here about the interpretation of the passages above. Now, I may be just kind of jumping out of line here, but I, I remember well, I don't remember which professor uh, encouraged this when we were in seminary, Pastor Ill, but I remember well a professor making a point that when we speak about Scripture, it's maybe not helpful in our present culture and context to use the word interpretation just because so many people have the 
understanding of that word interpretation of, well, it's, it's open to interpretation. You have your interpretation. I have my interpretation and, you know, th- those sorts of ideas when it comes to when, when the word interpretation is used here, we want to say, this is what, what, Melanchthon is highlighting for the Lutheran reformers is how are we to understand what God is presenting to us in scripture? And that was what the professor's main point is, is, is when we, when we speak about interpretation, you know, it, uh, with it regards to scripture, it's about understanding it, it. It is God's truth and we are gaining understanding from it. And so that's, we want to understand how, what are these passages actually saying and, and do they apply or not? Um, not, you know, different interpretations and so forth. All right. Uh, let's push forward then. And I'm going to read through, um, paragraphs 23 and 24 and 24 is kind of a, a long paragraph just to warn you. Uh, but, uh, uh it, it is kind of the first point, uh, evaluating and gaining understanding based on that first passage cited. So again, power and primacy of the Pope, refutation of the Roman arguments, picking up with paragraph 23. And by the way, we are using the Concordia Reader's edition of the Book of Concord from Concordia Publishing House. In all these passages, Peter is the representative of the entire assembly of apostles, as appears from the text itself. Christ does not ask Peter alone when he says, who do you say that I am? Matthew 16, verse 15. What is said here to Peter alone in the singular number, I will give you singular the keys and whatever you singular bind 16 verse 19 is elsewhere expressed in the plural. For example, in Matthew 18, 18, whatever you plural bind John 20, 23, if you plural forgive the sins of anyone, these words show that the keys are given to all the apostles alike and that all the apostles are sent forth alike. So just to pause here before I go into paragraph 24, the, the, the singular plural back and forth that, that he's highlighting here is with regard to the word you, uh, as it is in the original Greek. You, you look like you want me to pause longer. I do. That's true. Uh, <laughs> All right, English, let's talk about this. Eng- English doesn't do this, but other languages, including Greek, uh, which uh, these passages are written in, do. And so uh, for some of our, our Texas brethren, uh, they may refer to y'all or all y'all as a group of, of more than one you. Um, and so here... There are places in Scripture where the disciples who received these commands are y'all, and uh, it's not just to you singular. And so when we are distinguishing the singular you and the plural y'all, it's, it's something that Jesus himself does uh, in the Greek. Absolutely. Another pointless side tangent, though, is, is that it's really confusing in Texas language because y'all can be singular or plural. All y'all is always plural. That's not confusing. That's perfectly clear to me. Okay. Moving on to paragraph 24. (laughs) I give up. In addition, it must be recognized that the keys belong not to the person of one particular man, but to the church. Many most clear and firm arguments show this. For Christ speaking about the keys adds, for example, if two of you agree on earth, Matthew 18, 19. Therefore, he grants the keys first and directly to the church. This is why it is it is first the church that has the right of calling for just as the promise of the gospel belongs certainly and immediately to the entire church. So the keys belong immediately to the entire church. 
because the keys are nothing else than the office whereby this promise is communicated to everyone who desires it, just as it is actually manifest that the church has the power to ordain ministers of the church. And Christ speaks in these words, whatsoever you shall bind, etc., and indicates to whom he has given the keys, namely to the church, where two or three are gathered together in my name. Likewise, Christ gives supreme and final jurisdiction to the church when he says, tell it unto the church. Therefore, these passages demonstrate that Peter is the representative of the entire assembly of the apostles. They do not grant Peter any privilege or superiority or lordship. All right. So that's kind of the first evaluation of it. A lot to bite off there. And 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 for our listeners, I mean, it's probably a pretty self-selecting listenership that we have. I mean, if you're if you're listening to a show that is uh, basically uh, audio commentary of the Book of Concord, you're you're probably a little deeper into theology and things. And this is great. Uh, uh, we want you. Or you're we're glad lost. you're here. We're lost. Yeah. You're lost, and we're glad you found us. That that yeah. too. Yeah. yeah. And, and but uh, you know, so we we may take this for granted. In our Lutheran theology and understanding, because we teach this in confirmation, Pastor L, I know you and I, we do this on a regular basis um, with our with our junior catechesis and adult catechesis and so forth, and we explain this, but we kind of take it for granted. Um, but that was not the thinking at the time of the Reformation. Obviously, this comes into Luther's small catechism where he talks about the office of the keys and so forth, and that's where we cover it in catechesis. Um, but go, go ahead and break it down. Make it simple here. What, what is the, the, the point referring to here? Uh, how, how are we to understand uh, what, what God's Word is presenting us here? This is all a giant question of authority. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. And Jesus gives his authority. The question that Melanchthon is is raising here is, to whom did Jesus give the authority? Did Jesus give the authority to Peter as a representative of the church in order to be the dispenser to the other disciples and apostles? And then from them to give that authority unto the whole church? Or does Jesus give that authority to the church itself, that authority of speaking the forgiveness of sins or for those uh, tragic times when there is no repentance, even for withholding the forgiveness of sins. And Melanchthon's argument is, it is not to Peter and then to the apostles and then to the whole church that Jesus gives this authority. Jesus is speaking here to the church. Just because Peter spoke individually to, back to Jesus on behalf of the group doesn't mean that Jesus' response is directly and exclusively to Peter. It is instead to the entire church, to all who hear his word. And it is the, the joy of all who hear the word of Jesus to get to speak with authority what is true on earth and in heaven, that sins are forgiven. And that is exactly what Melanchthon is is laying out here. I like what you, you know, who is he talking to here, right? This is a very basic question. It almost seems too basic to be presented in such a formal, logical work going on here, right? Um, but, but it is a very basic question that needs to be evaluated, right? Who is Jesus talking to? And I think I, it, it's brilliant what he lays out here. You know, if you want to cite this passage, okay, yeah, it's singular there. 
But clearly he says the same sorts of things in the plural other places. It is evident when scripture interprets scripture, um, which is, which is a, a way that we understand what scripture presents to us and teaches us. When scripture interprets scripture, it, you can't just base it on that one verse when, when clearly it's in the plural other. So I think this, this speaks directly to kind of my thoughts at the beginning of the episode with how do you begin to understand a passage like what you were talking about? Yeah. How do you read the text? Yeah, how, how do you read this? And I, I, Which okay, fancy term not, in theology is ex- exegesis, exe- by the way. Well, or hermeneutics. Also. Also, yes. yeah. <laughs> same, same department. Woo! Yes. Um, so the, the, is the text going to... So here's what I do. Um, I, th- I think I... I ask the question, how does this text actually point me to Christ? What's an understanding that's going to point me to Christ? Now, I will admit that's a presupposition on my part, but I have Christ himself telling me in John and in Luke that, hey, all of Scripture is actually about me. So I think I'm on pretty solid footing starting with how is this going to point me to Christ? And the problem I run into if I read this as a Roman Catholic saying that this is about Peter is that understanding of it, that interpretation of it, is not actually going to point me towards Christ. That's going to point me towards Peter. And this man, who immediately gets rebuked and called Satan, and then later on denies Jesus three times, and, you know, he's he's got lots of issues going on here, and your, your, your understanding as a Roman Catholic is going to point me to him, whereas the understanding that we're talking about, that Melanchthon is talking about here, is actually going to point me solidly towards Christ and say, this is about him. As Pastor Ill said, it's about his authority. Who has he given it to? And now what do you do with that authority once it's been given? What is that for? Oh, well, it's also about Christ. It's forgiveness of sins. It's still about him. And it, it that understanding keeps us in that same cycle of it's about Christ. It's about forgiveness of sins. It's about this delivered to us for our good and all that. Whereas the other understanding coming from the other way and saying this is about Peter Okay, that's. I can kind of see where you get the Roman Catholic Church as a result of that. Which actually sets up the next section, which we won't cover today and we won't cover next week because we have a spe- more more on that at the end of the show. Ooh, Reformation special, show special next, next week? Not quite a Reformation Ooh. special, but, but a special show next week. So in a couple weeks, we'll cover the next section, which is a contrast between Christ and the Pope. Clearly, this this is the logical next step, right? If mm-hmm. if we're pointed at Peter based on the theology that you're you're coming from, the Roman Catholic Church, right? Yeah. And then that's where we get the really fiery, you know, Antichrist stuff really starting oh, to yeah, begin. Oh, th- yeah, this is why Luther and so Melanchthon and all those suddenly get really angry. Yeah. <laughs> you know, wait, you're really going down this path? Okay, now we're mad and we're probably going to say some things we're going to regret later. <laughs> yeah. Take a break. We'll come right back after this. Ecclesiastes 10 verse 10 states, If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. Find this true wisdom in Christ on Sharper Iron every weekday morning at 8 a.m. here on Worldwide KFUO. Sharpen the iron of your faith together with two pastors as they take up the sword of the Spirit to proclaim the gifts of Christ crucified and risen for you. 
Did you know that many LCMS military personnel and their families are unable to receive Word and Sacrament ministry due to the lack of LCMS chaplains? Ministry to the Armed Forces is looking for pastors who will answer the call to serve as a chaplain to provide Word and Sacrament ministry to the men and women who selflessly serve our nation. Find out more about this exciting ministry by contacting me, Chaplain Craig Mueller, at lcmschaps at lcms.org. That is lcmschaps at lcms.org. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. The prophet Isaiah chapter 55 verses 10 and 11. Begin and conclude your day with the word that accomplishes the purposes for which it is sent. Morning prayer at 7 a.m. and evening prayer at 5 p.m. Weekdays on KFUO. Christ for you anytime, anywhere. The broadcasts of morning prayer and evening prayer are underwritten by Lutherans for Life. Welcome back to Concord Matters with our cohort of Christ-Confessing Concordians, reading through the book of Concord, Power and Primacy of the Pope. We have layman Peter Slayton, Pastor Peter Hill, myself, Pastor Sean Smith, and we have this great discussion going on refuting the Roman Catholic arguments for the power and primacy of the Pope. Their arguments, right, and we're refuting them. They're citing these scripture passages, and we're saying, oh, hang on a minute, do those even apply? How do you read the text? That's how not you, what that means. How do you... How do you do your hermeneutic, you know, what, how do you do your exegesis, right? And, 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 and a thought hit me right, right, right. As I, you know, had to go to break here and, and I kind of discussed this with, uh, layman Slayton as, as we were at break. So for the Roman Catholics, you know, these are really important because for them, it sets up, you know, Peter as the Pope, uh, the first Pope and, and gives the, gives the office of the papacy divine authority right and the lutherans are like well hang on do those texts even apply right and we're making the case no the keys you know the keys to the kingdom of heaven we would say uh apply to the whole church right um we have pastors who execute that office on behalf of the church right and the office of the pastor is divinely instituted right but you know, there there may be some that come to this show from American evangelical. Now, that's a really broad term and probably encompasses <laughs> way too many. And we've talked about this on the show, just kind of the difficulty of, you know, it's not really that there's like American evangelicals and Catholics and the Lutherans are kind of in the middle. I mean, that's that's a bad binary to even <laughs> set up. I'm, I'm not trying to set that up. But, you know, broadly speaking, you do have a bunch of other folks that are, you know, definitely on a different kind of end of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. And I do think it's probably a spectrum, you know, out there. And you come from that kind of background, Layman Slayton. So I just wondered, you know, are these even talked about? Is this even an issue for that that other end of the spectrum? Well, what's interesting is these became huge passages, the Matthew 16, but also the John 21 um, 22, sorry, John 22, and the when 
Jesus appears to the disciples after his resurrection. Um, there's the keys there as well. 21. The, the feed my sheep part is 21. Oh, okay. Well, whenever the, the keys thing happens, um, I'm thinking the keys, not the sheep. But you, oh. those two passages where, whereas Lutherans, you talk about, oh, okay, this is the office of the keys, the office of the ministry. This is where it's established. They're, they're huge passages, like you said, for us in that sense. And I would say coming from, from my background as I grew up in the first 25 years of my life or so, maybe actually more like 30, because um, even when I became a Lutheran, I wasn't really a Lutheran for a long time. The, those passages are not like major passages. So when you talk about Matthew 16, when, from what I recall hearing it in sermons um, or you're going through a Bible study and that comes up, it's all about Peter's confession. Hey, look, he knows that Jesus is Lord. And then you talk about, oh, and then there's this whole get behind me Satan thing. Well, that's interesting. The the keys isn't doesn't come into it. The office of the ministry doesn't come into it because there really isn't an office of the ministry, depending on your evangelical background. I know that, like you said, Again, there's a, a spectrum. spectrum yeah. And in some traditions there are, but generally speaking, yes, you have a pastor, but the pastor isn't called that terminology is not used the way we use it that's more of i have an internal desire to be a pastor and that's the call in that tradition um we use call very differently we have the internal desire too but for the evangelical that's that's all you need you start with that and that's it and you go to seminary depending on your tradition there and get training but the main difference between me and the guy standing up there in the pulpit is he has training. That's it. There's, there's nothing else. He's simply been trained to do that. Which I could is actually, usually symbolized by the fact that they wear a suit. They want to look like the people and things yeah, like that. Yeah, they, they look a little more professional. They're a better public speaker. They're a better communicator. It's, it's all about the skill and the education itself. Um, so these passages don't, don't come up really in the way we talk about them at all. Now, they will bring up the Roman Catholic, oh, yeah, and the Catholics think that this is what makes Peter the Pope. Ha, 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 how dumb are they? Because, you know, if you're evangelical, then anything Catholic is bad. <laughs> um, so it comes up in that, but the Lutheran view, that that was, like, totally new to me. Never heard that. The office of the ministry, the office of the keys, completely foreign terminology, not something that would have been discussed, much less talked about in this way we're going to lay out here's how this how this works so yeah i could imagine people listening are like this is a thing you you guys actually argue about this wow you strange lutherans and catholics Weird. why are you worried about this yeah we don't even talk about it and some of our poor listeners might even wonder what exactly we are arguing about uh this terminology <laughs> of the office of the keys is not terminology that is used throughout the whole church and so from time to time we end up with just really kind of bizarro uh I don't want to say it's a bizarro term. I take inside that baseball, uh, but it's an inside baseball term. But in the small catechism written by Martin Luther, uh, the office of the keys is, as he writes, that special authority which Christ has given to His Church on earth to forgive the sins of repentant sinners, but to withhold forgiveness from the unrepentant as long as they do not repent. And then the catechism goes on to say, where is this written? And it speaks of John chapter 20 and of of this passage here in Matthew uh, 16. 
And the office of the keys is that authority given not just to pastors, but to the whole church. What you were saying before, Peter, about how in the evangelical church, the the pastor ends up being not one necessarily under particular authority, but uh, a a well-trained, skilled representative of the church to the church. But in our understanding, when we speak of the office of the ministry, the pastor is the called and ordained servant of Christ, servant of the word of God, who speaks that forgiveness. And he doesn't do it uh, with the hope that you are forgiven or with the desire or the wish that you are forgiven. When the pastor speaks in that position that has been conferred upon him by prayer and the word of God, by the church who has called him to do what he's doing, he then speaks for Jesus himself. And I know some evangelicals kind of have a little bit of a blow up over this. Well, as I say, that's actually why these don't come into the discussion, because when we talk about forgiveness and forgiveness of sins, the the general, and I'd say this is a pretty universal understanding, is you don't need any man to forgive your sins. It's just, it's, you can go straight universal to God Universal for the now. evangelical. Yeah, for the evangelical, universal. Um, you go straight to God. There, There's now no mediator between man and God, and so therefore you, you don't need a man to do that. So why would you even be discussing whether a man can do that? Which man should do that? What does that even look like? And you notice once, I don't know, maybe this, I just connected a dot here that maybe shouldn't be connected, but when you start taking that out of the discussion, all of a sudden women can be dropped into this office as well when you're no longer using it for what it was intended. Um, that's a little side tangent there that you could have. But forgiveness isn't isn't a part of this. Now, now, if one of you sins against me, I can forgive you because that was against you and me. But any sin that I've committed of any other kind, I would never consider going to another person and saying, can you forgive me? Can you can you speak these words? Even if it's can you speak God's words to me? That you know, I might go for comfort and encouragement to hear. Well, yeah, God will forgive you, and He forgives all your sins. I my pastor might do that for me, but there is no person that I would go to to actually hear I forgive your sins. That would never happen unless I had specifically sinned against that person, and they were only forgiving me of that sin against them. And even then it's not seen as a divine between me and, and God kind of thing. So that's that's why these passages, they wouldn't come up in that way because, well, why would they? Your forgiveness doesn't work that way. <laughs> yeah, I, I do want to respond to the connecting the dots there with the women's ordination and women mm-hmm. serving. I, I, I think that there's probably a lot of dots that would have to be connected to have that conversation. We sure. could have that conversation on it's a just show one like this little at some point. Here, yeah. Yeah, but I, I don't know that it would be that fair because probably the largest group that I would put, again, it's a spectrum, but probably the largest group that I would put on that American evangelical side would be your traditional Baptists, Southern Baptists, and so forth, and they would hold the line mm-hmm. on not having uh, women pastors and so forth. So, yeah, I, it's I, not that you're going yeah. to do it, but it's it does make it one step easier. But but clearly, yeah. there 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 is this this 
idea at work in their theology that comes back to the issue of authority in the church at all. And I like what you highlight there, that for that end of the spectrum, right, is that it's kind of the anti-Roman Catholic where it's all about authority for the Roman Catholic Church. And they're like, nope, don't want any of that, right? (laughs) And and, and we see that on so many levels, right? You know, vestments and all sorts of other things. Like, they just want to be so anti-Catholic, right? And and the Lutherans kind of always get stuck in the middle there. It's not really the middle either. Um, but, uh, you know, the the idea that we, we still acknowledge that there is authority in the office, but where does that authority come from? Mm-hmm. And a key passage for that is the Matthew 16, verse 18 passage for the Roman Catholic argument, which we are refuting in this section, right? The, the Lutheran reformers are. Uh, this passage is one of the, the whoppers. I, I can't tell you how many times I've had it thrown at me as to why the Pope is is definitely got the authority, right? Mm-hmm. Because it comes all the way down from Peter himself. Um, and, and this is their passage. So I'm just going to go ahead and read this section. Beginning in paragraph 25 of the power and primacy of the Pope. As for the declaration on this rock, I will build my church. Matthew 16, verse 18. Certainly the church has not been built upon the authority of a man. All right. We just want a whole bunch of Baptists and American evangelicals. All right. (laughs) That's, That's Sean Smith's side tangent conversation. Rather, it has been built upon the ministry of the confession Peter made, in which he proclaims that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, Matthew 16, verse 16. Therefore, Christ... I'm just going to pause again. I I can't. I got to talk. So, yeah, I mean... Occupational hazards. So much going on here. When you read the text, right? I mean, you got to read the text. You can't just throw out Matthew 16, verse 18, without it being connected to Matthew 16, 16. This is simple, basic how you read, right? Um, But that's just the whole problem of proof texting and all sorts of other things that that still go on today in the church. All right. Uh, But clearly 16, verse 16, or 16, 18 is connected to 16, verse 16 in Matthew, all right? So you got to read the text, guys. All right. Continue on with what's actually written here. Therefore, Christ addresses Peter as a minister on this rock that is this ministry. Therefore, he addresses him as a minister of this office in which this confession and doctrine is to be in operation and says upon this rock, i.e. this preaching and preaching office. Furthermore, the ministry of the New Testament is not bound to places and persons like the Levitical, that is, Old Testament ministry was. Rather, it is spread throughout the whole world. That is where God gives his gifts, apostles, prophets, pastors, and teachers, as it says in Ephesians 4 verse 11. Nor does this ministry work because of the authority of any person, but because of the word given by Christ, as it says in Romans ten seventeen. Nor does the person add anything to this word and office. It matters not who is preaching and teaching it. If there are hearts who receive and cling to it, to them it is done as they hear and believe. Most of the Holy Church Fathers, such as Origen, Cyprian, Augustine, Hilary, and Bede, interpret the passage on this rock in this way, as not referring to the person of Peter. Chrysostom says this, Upon this rock, not upon Peter, for he built his church not upon man, but upon the faith of Peter. But what was his faith? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Hilary says, The Father revealed to Peter that he should say, You are the Son of the living God. Matthew 16, verse 17. 
Therefore, the building of the church is upon this rock of confession. This faith is the foundation of the church. Thus far, Hillary, and thus far, this section on the power and primacy of the Pope. A little more in this refuting the Roman arguments, but I think a lot to bite off here, too. And, and I feel like we said this just a matter of a couple of weeks ago. It's really awkward when the church fathers, right, <laughs> the, the guys who you give such authority to are like, no, it, it's clearly about the confession, right? And and then it's like, in your face, guys. Sorry, that's, that's Sean Smith's snark See, the, reading of the text. This, this reminds me, as I was reading this section, we're, you know, we're talking about my background evangelicalism. This understanding of the passage, that it was actually Peter's confession, was not something that I, that the rock was the confession the first time i can remember clearly hearing that and understanding it was actually from a lutheran pastor who is preaching why it's not peter is the pope because like i said in my background i think you don't really do much with the passage other than well it can't mean what the catholics make it mean but i don't know what it actually is let's just move on to something else but it i think it's significant that the first time i even heard this understanding of it was from a Lutheran pastor. And at the time I was like, oh, that's a novel idea. That's I've never heard that before. I've that's that must be a new thing that this person came up with. And I'm here like, oh wait a minute. This entire document is doing that. So this Lutheran pastor is simply doing what Lutherans have always done with this passage. Wait, this isn't new at all. Oh. Well that's interesting. Okay. And but it's just weird how you you never even hear certain understandings of a text unless you, I don't know, you encounter a tradition where it's like, look, this matters. Let's talk about it. I think it's also really helpful to do a little bit of bibliography on the writers that Melanchthon is quoting here. He references Hilary of Potier and he references uh, John Chrysostom. Hilary of Potier was a fourth century bishop in the city of Potier. It he was known at, at the time as the Athanasius of the West, and he was very much a Western Christian. John Chrysostom, uh, Chrysostom is a fancy word for the golden-tongued guy. Uh, <laughs> he was known as uh, the leading theologian and leading preacher of the Eastern Church. And so there's no room for anybody to come... And he was golden-tongued. His and he was sermons golden -tongued. are awesome. They, they <laughs> absolutely oh, are. Yeah, goodness. they're amazing. <laughs> And he proceeded, as, but there's no room for anybody to come back and say, oh, Melanchthon is reading these Eastern fathers who wouldn't like the papacy anyway because it was it was already there and established and, and they already didn't like it. He's quoting one of their own in Hilary of Potier, and he's quoting John Chrysostom, both saying the same thing. This is... According to Melanchthon, according to the fathers who are coming in the 4th and 5th centuries, this is the universal teaching of the church. This is not new. This is not breathtaking. This is the understanding of the church in the 4 and 500s. And, and I just want to make a side. I, I get no kickback for this or anything like that, but it's kind of a little advertisement. But, but uh, if you're interested 
in knowing more about these these references. And I mean, we talk about this on the show a lot. You know, we, we highlight, okay, this is one of the church fathers that we're talking about right here. Lots of great resources on the church fathers and, and varied things available to you from Concordia Publishing House, the publishing arm of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. But also, more basically, if you're looking just for, you know, who is this and when did they fall in and so forth, in the Concordia Reader's Edition of the Book of Concord, available to you from Concordia Publishing House, in the back, all right, now if you get the the smaller like pocket edition or whatever it doesn't include it um, but the regular sized readers edition in the back in the indexes it has persons and groups that are cited and I find that really helpful for myself and I mean Pastor Ella and I we sat through classes on these things uh, and I'm supposed to remember them I probably knew them at one time but I don't know. I forget things sometimes. You know. I still know how to pronounce potier. I win. Yeah, potiers is how I always say it because I'm just not good at you know getting the accent. I found a cool map of Germany but, in the back of mine. Yeah, there's there's lots of great resources back there, and and I know that this sounds like another little tangent on the show for like the fifth time today, but but this is a helpful tangent. I think Look, people that people listen to us for the yeah. tangents. Yeah. If you say so, uh, but uh, but is also really just kind of helpful to reference. Okay, who is that? By the way, I mean if you look up Hillier, Hill, <clears throat> pardon me, Hillary of Potier. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> it also tells me that he was he was he was a well known hymnist, right? I mean that's that's just helpful. Do we have any of his hymns in our Lutheran service? Book? I'm sure that we do. Probably one or two, I would guess. Cool. We'll have to check. Pastor it out. checking it out. Okay. All right. So take us away while he looks it up. <laughs> Bring us back. No more tangent. Okay. Well, should we keep reading? We're almost uh, to the end here. So let's just finish sure. off our I feel section. like I've read quite a lot today, and, I can, and your I can voice is so you. soothing. So oh, why don't you? Great. It's going to crack every you're, five you're seconds. You're not golden-tongued, but... No. Okay. So beginning on paragraph 30 at the top of page 298 of the Reader's Edition, second edition. As for what is said in John 21, 15 through 19, feed my lambs, and... Do you love me more than these? It does not follow from this passage that a peculiar superiority was given Peter. Christ tells him, feed, i.e. teach, preach the word, the gospel, or rule the church with the word, the gospel, which task Peter has in common with the other apostles. The second article is even clearer. Christ gave the apostles only spiritual power, i.e. the command to teach the gospel, to announce the forgiveness of sins, to administer the sacraments, to excommunicate the godless without bodily force by the word. He did not give them the power of the sword, the right to establish, occupy, or bestow kingdoms of the world, Romans 13:4. For Christ says, Go, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you, Matthew 28, 19-20. Also, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you, John 20, 21. That's actually the reference I was looking at earlier, looking for earlier. It is clear that Christ was not sent to bear the sword or possess a worldly kingdom, as he himself says, my kingdom is not of this world, John 18, 36. And Paul says, not that we lord it over your faith, 2 Corinthians 1, 24. And the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, 2 Corinthians 10, 4, and so forth. All right. So this this is yet another one of the passages that is being used to support that kind of threefold um, uh, claims 
about the papacy, the office of the papacy, the office of the pope that had developed over time, right? And just a reminder, I, I gave it at the beginning of the show, but I think it pertains here, right? So the pope is the supreme head of the church by divine right was the first point mm-hmm. or the first claim that they had. Uh, the second claim is the pope by divine right possesses both spiritual sword and temporal sword so that he has authority to bestow and transfer kingdoms. You heard that reference definitely in what you just read there. Yeah, that actually reminded me that that was a thing as I read this. Yeah. yeah. And then the third claim is it is necessary for salvation to believe these things because he himself is the vicar of Christ on earth. That was the third claim they had. And and you see, if these are the scripture passages being used, I feel like we pretty handily laid out the case or Melanchthon has pretty, yeah. pretty handily laid out the case of look, th- those claims can just not be valid on these scripture passages. So either find some better scripture passages, which you're not going to find, right? <laughs> um, or, or, or stop using these as the arguments, but it's still around today. So let's just deal with this. It talks about excommunication and so forth. Um, so we're talking about church discipline. You know, if it's a matter of divine right, uh, well, then how does that play into excommunication? Lots of things to dig into here, Pastor Ill, with like a minute left. And I'm going to ask you to refer to St. Peter by that name, because too many Peter names going on in here. <laughs> Our Lord Jesus speaks to St. Peter and to his other saintly disciples and apostles. And he gives them that very authority, not because of who they are as disciples, not because of who they are as apostles, but because who he has made them as church. He is the head of the church with all authority, and as he gives that authority to them, the church has this divinely instituted office of the pastor given them by Jesus to speak the forgiveness of sins. That's exactly what pastors do. But it's not an authority that is given to St. Peter alone so that he would be able to pass it down from him to his successor, to his successor, and so on, and to be able to continue to delegate that authority throughout the church. This is the church's authority given the church by Jesus. And as the church hears and receives, she hears and receives from the pastors that Jesus has given her. And so... It is on this confession of faith that Jesus is the Christ, that he builds his church, and where he forgives our sins. Bringing us back to Jesus, the authority is in the word. As we've highlighted on the show many times, excellent summary of the point there. Wish we could have delved in more to it. But next week, very exciting special episode. We're coming up on the 15-year anniversary of the Concordia Reader's Edition Book of Concord, available from CPH. And uh, so we have the editor still working for CPH. Pastor Paul McCain will be our guest on the show next week. He'll talk about the project of putting this together about 15 years ago, uh, things that uh, you know have developed since and been really good. There are a lot going on. I don't have time for my promo. Listen next week. That's my summary. For now, thanks for stopping by today. And until next time, keep confessing, church.